listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. I'm Adriana Linares and I'm the host for today's show, but I'm lucky to have a co-host today. Hey there, John. Adriana, how are you? Good. John, tell our listeners a little bit about you. Well, my name is John Stewart, and I am an uh, attorney in Vero Beach, Florida, and a member of the Florida Bar Board of Governors. We have a little bit of experience together doing these Legal Talk Network interviews, so thank you so much for joining me. What are you doing here at CleoCon, by the way? Well, I've been watching some of the people that we're about to interview. I saw Michelle DiStefano just speak. It was Excellent. fantastic. Very good. Before we introduce our guests, let me finish just telling everybody where we are. We're, of course, in Chicago at the Clio Cloud Conference. It's returned for its second time to the beautiful Radisson Blue Aqua Hotel. Of course, we're here to cover this event for you and our listeners. And joining me now, we have Michelle DiStefano and Michael Mills. Hey, Michelle. Hi, Adrian. It's so nice to meet you finally in person. Same. It's an absolute pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a law professor at University of Miami, and this year I'm visiting at Harvard. Very cool. And before law school, I spent eight years in marketing and business, and so that's what I try to do, bring all that experience into my law professor world. Very cool. And tell us a little bit about Law Without Walls. So Law Without Walls is a part virtual collaboratory of about uh, 750 change agents. We've got entrepreneurs, uh, lawyers, academics, business professionals, venture capitalists, all working together to solve law's problems. And you came to speak about global law school, moving legal education into the 21st century on the business of law track. Yes. We're going to ask you a couple questions about that in just a second after I introduce our second guest. Hello, Michael Mills. Hello. How are you? It's very nice to see you again after I assaulted you in the hall earlier, just dying to meet you. Well, that's a good thing about conferences. You get to meet people whom you don't know. Yeah, that's really neat. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Neotologic, which is a very cool company. Sure. I'm I'm a lawyer by training. I uh, practiced law for a bunch of years as a partner in a big law firm. I spent... uh, good many years in a technology and management role at another big law firm and then uh, with some partners started Neotologic uh, five years ago. And what does Neotologic do? Neotologic is a software company. We build software that allows lawyers to do things like build TurboTax if they wanted to do that, uh, to build applications that create products out of expertise. That's pretty interesting stuff. You were here talking on a topic, uh, practice at internet scale, expertise as a product. It's very small font on my notes here. And that was on the legal technology track. Yes. uh, I've gotten to know the folks at Clio over the last year or two, and uh, they had asked me to come down and talk a bit about ways in which technology can be used to create a different form of legal service beyond the traditional one-to-one craftsman-like personal service that is the foundation of law practice. So, Michelle, you know some of the folks at Clio, too. Is that true? I do. And I think we were talking a little bit earlier, Jack Newton, who's the head honcho here at Clio, is part of your Laws Without Walls program. Jack is definitely part of Law Without Walls. In fact, I met Jack, I think, in 2010, a year or two after he started Clio, and told him about this crazy idea called Law Without Walls, and asked him if he'd be willing to participate as an entrepreneur mentor, and he said yes. That's wonderful. So you were here to speak. We heard what you were speaking on, Global Law School. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the subject matter of your talk and how it relates to Laws Without Walls? Well, the subject matter of the talk was about how law school is changing given the global marketplace and how that's transforming the skills that lawyers need to hone and the way lawyers 
work with non-lawyers to solve problems and as well how we're going to actually train lawyers to be um, future problem solvers. So you're in University of Miami in Florida also. I'm a Florida lawyer. So how do you feel that uh, the international or you talked about the global marketplace is really impacting everyone, even us uh, attorneys in Florida? Well, there's no escaping the global marketplace simply because of technology. Technology makes it so that people all over the world are within reach. And to not actually tap into that as an opportunity is crazy. And most of us actually can't just choose. We're forced to actually work in a global world, especially in Miami. We're the gateway to Latin America. And, you know, I would think that uh, speaking more than one language, especially in a state like Florida, would be an essential skill for a lawyer of tomorrow. Very true. Very true. You talked about, I think, how many countries did you say? 15 countries involved in your program? 15 countries in terms of the students. We have more than that if you look at our mentors because we have mentors from all over the world. But yeah, we have 30 law and business schools from over 15 countries. And the only way to bring all those people together is through technology. Really. And actually, technology helps break down tons of barriers. You're all the same size on the video screen. When you only see somebody's face and you only go by first name and you're talking, breaks down a lot of the walls and hierarchies that are built up just from the cultural connections you make in terms of seeing somebody in person, what they wear, where they work, where you are and where they are. And Michael, you have a lot of experience in that same sort of breaking down walls and being able to move expertise from one place to another. Again, sort of thanks to technology and being able to take one person's experience and help someone else take advantage of that same sort of experience in, in, in the things that you talked about during your presentation today. I think there are two geographic dimensions to the way I, I see uh, technology in the law. One is uh, the collaboration, breaking down walls, allowing people to practice effectively virtually, to allowing large firms to, in fact, function as single firms, which is a, a difficult challenge for a whole variety of reasons. Even when they're in the same city, that can be hard. In the same, same building. city, in the same building. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's r remarkable how many lawyers in modern offices, uh, all stacked up floor by floor in extremely expensive real estate, will spend the day emailing and, and messaging right. to each other rather than talking to each other. You do begin to wonder why law firms have the, the offices they do. In the first place, but right. The, the other geographic dimension is uh, that... The law from multiple jurisdictions impacts all of us. It used to be that the law in my own city and state was about all that I needed to care about, or maybe country. But now, certainly for business, but also for individuals in many contexts, the law of not only the state where I live, but states in which I do business, states in which, from which I buy things, states where I travel, uh, jurisdictions from which I buy things, all of that sort of stuff, there is a global dimension to legal problems that uh, is, I think as Michelle says, ever-growing. Let me ask you both this, and I'm sure I read John's mind. He was about to ask this very same question. Why do you think it's so hard for lawyers to grasp this? Why are we constantly having to remind them and say these things? What's the, what's the problem? What's the holdup? Michelle? I'd say the first holdup is that, I'd say it's twofold. Number one, the only way to get comfortable using technology to collaborate is to use technology to collaborate. <laughs> and learning new skills and new technologies 
is at the beginning sometimes a time suck. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word sure. on the radio, but it we takes time to words. learn it and it takes time to adapt it and it takes time to train yourself to use Skype, for example, instead of a conference call. I think the second reason is innovation is a really scary word. It means changing, getting out of our comfort zones. It it means doing something different. I don't think it means huge, big changes. As I talked about earlier, I think it's tiny little things that can have lasting value. But the word innovation and the words technology, scary. It's pretty scary to learn. Maybe, maybe they shouldn't be used. I would argue that the technology is often more difficult to use than it should be. Uh, and lawyers are practical about deciding whether to adopt technology, uh, and they have a short-term payback curve. Uh, if it serves them and will serve them quickly, then they will adopt it no matter how complicated it is. But I, I think also that uh, lawyers are by temperament conservative people. All of those studies that have been done of comparing the personalities and behavioral characteristics of lawyers show that we, and there are a number of us at this table who are lawyers, uh, skew very significantly off of uh, the averages of business people generally or uh, people generally. We are uh, more skeptical, more demanding, more conservative uh, in a whole variety of ways. And we apply that to technology as we do to law practice. And we self-selected to go to law school and to, to join a profession which is built on uh, precedent and conservatism and the avoidance of change. So we bring to that uh, our personalities and the traditions of our profession. You know, it's funny. It raises the question that, Michelle, that you talked about in your presentation, that in the U.S. we are loath to adopt, but that's alternative business structures. It, you know, there's maybe, you know, this is a question I'll throw out to both of you as well. I mean, maybe there's value in having non-lawyer professionals in law firms so that lawyers don't necessarily have to get uh, bogged down in technology if that's not their highest and best use. We could start by dropping the term non-lawyer. When you walk into a, the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic and there is a wide range of professionals who treat you, you don't call them non-doctors. <laughs> you <Right>. call them <laughs> nurses, uh, imaging technicians, all kinds of respectful terms. Uh, that reflect the expertise that they bring. It was the state of Texas, which I think is now back down from this, but the state of Texas decided recently that law firms could not have people with That's the right. title chief anything, chief technology officer, for example, because law firms were partnerships and to suggest that there was a chief technology officer or a chief marketing officer was to suggest that someone other than a lawyer was in control. That sort of attitude is so ingrained in the profession that it's very difficult for uh, lawyers to bring to bear the expertise of folks who are not lawyers. So I would say that it starts with law school. I don't think we enter law school as the way you just described lawyers. I mm -hmm. think law school beats our creativity out of us. <laughs> I think... Discouraging. It, yes, <laughs> not all law schools, but I think that change needs to happen at that level and at the firm level in how we train our associates and how we find ways to reward and explore the talents that these future generations bring to our firms. And that's about discovery and embracing all the new generations and changing culture. I'm not sure that lawyers are as conservative as you described by nature. I think by the time they are 
law firm partners. They are and have a lot of reason to be. But the future lawyers of tomorrow are going to have to be better at taking risks mm -hmm. and working alongside with business experts and providing some business expertise, not only law, of their own in order to add value. I don't think that the ABS structure is essential to making that happen. There are good reasons for changing the business uh, regulatory rules around uh, law firms, but uh, I think you can bring other professionals to bear on law practice effectively without going so far as to change that, that aspect of regulation. Agreed. I think it should be done, but that has more to do with capital raising than anything else. We're in agreement there. <laughs> well, you know, it, it also, I think one piece that needs to be brought into this, particularly in uh, the larger states or the states with mandatory bars, you mentioned Texas, uh, Michelle and I are both in Florida, is uh, the state bars. I mean, that's part of it. It's the education at the law schools, but the law schools and the state bars need to need to work with one another. Um, they traditionally don't since they're accredited by the ABA. And uh, the state bars need to work with the lawyers. I mean, that's the sort of a three-pronged approach, uh, and the state bars can be a little bit behind the learning curve. I think it's hard, you know, for, for bar associations to even envision helping with a program like that or, or some project like that because sometimes the bars themselves are so behind or, you know, ingrained. You know, Florida's been going through a lot lately and, and watching the bar association wake up, really, that's what's been happening, and, and start to see how important these changes can be and how effective they can be in helping not just their memberships, the members, but future lawyers too. It, it's very hard. And so you're, you're right, John. I, I don't know why bar associations don't work more closely with the law schools. We have 12 in Florida. Texas must have mm -hmm. at least that. That, you know, as mm -hmm. big as it is in California. And um, it's certainly something I would like to see that gap get a little bit closer, close, closer. And then that could also then trickle down into that, you know, that other topic everybody keeps bringing up. And that's access and figuring out how to get all those groups to talk to each other and work together and, and just. Well, John led a committee mm -hmm. and he reached out to me and some others in Law Without Walls and at the University of Miami. And he was on the committee, I think, with you, Adriana, on technology and innovation. And that group was really forward thinking. Yeah. They had Jordan Furlong helping them. Um, and recently, John wrote an article that I think says it all. I actually think there are pockets and groups of lawyers, uh, part of the bar associations that want to see change it's and true. the change is happening. You know, and I think like what ha what's been happening in Florida, not to keep using Florida as an example, but it's just such a good example right now. It's good timing, good leadership that happens to be in the right place at the right time, that's willing to listen, that's noticing the change, that's saying, man, we, we have got to wake up. I think that the overall bar is very divided on this. There is a part of the bar that serves large corporations that has effectively deregulated, in, in my view. Hmm. I think that the, the general counsel of General Electric feels entirely free to hire Axiom, which is not a law firm. Mm -hmm. It is a capital-financed corporation that happens to employ lawyers but pays the malpractice bills of the lawyers who work for them. They feel free to hire any of the alternative legal services providers. Those folks are doing work that is, for the most part, indistinguishable from what law firms mm -hmm. do. So I. I have a view that at the upper end of corporate practice, the industry has been deregulated. 
de facto. Do they know this? They, they know this. I don't this. think they've noticed some they, of them. They don't notice in the sense <laughs> that they don't care because they are able to conduct business in the way that is uh, effective for them, both for the providers and for the buyers of high-end legal services. I think the challenge for state bars is that those regulations remain in place, those restrictions remain in place that impede innovation in practice for other than the very top of the corporate practice. Well, both of you obviously excel in knowledge and use of technology, and and since we're on this subject, I imagine Texas is much like Florida, that most lawyers are in small firms or sole practitioners, and frankly, their adoption of technology is, in my opinion, and, and I'd throw this out to the both of you, is the only bit of education that's going to keep them in business in the future. I would agree with that. And I I think there's an available test in a way. Uh, There are a handful of key technologies that every lawyer needs to know. And Casey Flaherty, who comes out of the corporate uh, legal space, has created this actually quite clever uh, self-examination. And uh, he wrote a piece recently in which he said he'd been to a couple of law schools uh, because he offers the exam free to law schools. Mm -hmm. uh, And he offers the training that is meant to help people pass the exam free. And he was most discouraged that after giving the exam a number of times to students, he was getting the same sorts of results when he was giving it to people in law firms. I could have told him those were the results he was going to get. that (laughs) no one has taken up the offer to take advantage of the training materials. And he was discouraged about law school's interest in providing even that basic level of technical literacy. It's a shame that the law schools don't, you know, so... In, in my years, having worked at a couple of Florida's largest law firms, one of my jobs was to train the brand new lawyers that we hired out of law school on the computer system. That was my job. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, hey, welcome. Hey, I'm going to teach you, you know, a document management system. No idea. I, was, I had to teach them what a client matter number was. So I'm teaching them fresh out of law school the basics of managing a matter. All they came out of, and, and still today for the most part, is how to research, analyze, apply, and write about law. But that's it. And it's, for me, my passion was, has always been helping lawyers use technology better, and it's very discouraging that that's still how it is today. Clio has done good work with their academic access program. Yeah. They, they give away Clio to clinics in, yeah. law, in law schools, uh, and that teaches something about practice management. And a lot but of our the clinics that take use, advantage of well, it. Well, right? and a lot and of the clinics, clinics will use it. So yeah. we um, just started an entrepreneurship law clinic in partnership with Greenberg Charg, and where Clio is offering to offer their yeah. service, and we're looking into that. And I think that in addition to technology training the way we're talking about now, one wonders if lawyers for tomorrow don't need more than that. I mean, they, should they know how to code? Should they or, know how to, uh, you know, do a it, website? Absolutely. Well, I don't know if, law, for me, I don't know if lawyers need to know how to code and build a website. But what I wish lawyers would figure out how to do is problem solve using the various technology tools that they have. Right? So, and I used to, I used to think, if, if I could create a chart for problem solving with all the tools that we had at these enormous law firms, millions of dollars spent, and they couldn't think often that, well, if this program does that and it spits out over there, I wonder if there's a connect, you know, there's very little problem solving when it comes to technology. I, lawyers are designed to be problem solvers, but they're so 
short on technical basics well, that I mean, I gotta, the brain doesn't function that way. I got to tell you, I get a little uncomfortable when we say that about all lawyers. And I, because, you know, I, I get the opportunity to work with 100 aspiring lawyers from all over the world every year. And another 650 people that are just out of their own hearts giving their time to Law Without Walls to mentor. And they all have to use technology, about six it. or seven different technologies. And they want to try. And they embrace the frustration and the failure that comes with the trying. So I don't think we can lump everybody together. And I definitely think the younger generations are adapters of technology. They really are. The well, program that we do at Georgetown and Vanderbilt and a couple of other law schools, I think, has similar results. There are students who are really engaged and who think uh, imaginatively about solving problems uh, in different ways with different technologies. So I, I agree that there are signs of, of promise. Uh, it, <laughs> Don't give hope. up. Well, yes. to, I think to show the complexity of the problem and what might kind of bring it full circle is you can't blame the students for wanting to make sure they take the courses that are going to allow them to pass the bar exam. And technology is not something that's necessary to pass the bar exam. Uh, that's one of the issues that we've been looking at in Florida. Uh, you want to free them up so they can take those courses and still have credit hours to do the externships and to do the mm -hmm. practicums and to learn the technologies that would be more valuable. So it's a very complicated diagram. Well, I think, John, what you hit on is the problem that we're all facing right now. Whose responsibility is it to train not only tomorrow's lawyers, but today's lawyers that are already practicing that need that training. Because the law firms, mid to big, are trying, but not really taking responsibility for it. And their clients are saying, we don't want them on our business if they're not trained, not just from a legal standpoint, but also with some business acumen. And the law schools are having trouble fitting everything in their curriculum and struggling because of costs and lowered applications. And so everybody's pointing their fingers, you know. And so I go back to something that Adriana said that really was part of the impetus of Behind Law Without Walls, and that is we need practice and academia to work together on solving that problem. Research shows that that's when you get beautiful problem solving. And that's the only way we're going to figure out this training nut. Because right now, we haven't figured out whose responsibility it is or how it's going to get done or who's going to do it and who's going to pay for it. And you do need both the state and national bar involved in that discussion as well. It is the ABA, for example, which sets uh, the accreditation standards for law schools. And uh, their view of what's necessary may be rooted in at least the 20th century, if not some of the 19th. <laughs> Scary. Well, we want to thank you both very much for your time. But before I let each of you go, let our listeners know how they can keep an eye on you on the Internet. Michelle? Well, you can visit our website at www.lawwithoutwalls.org or lwow.org for short. Very nice. And you can visit our website, neotologic.com, and we do tweet a fair amount, uh, and I write a blog regularly, but it's all from the website. And is the Twitter handle Neotologic? It is. Do you have a Twitter handle? Law Without Walls. Same? Great. 
John. How can our listeners follow you Do on they the internet? Follow yes, me? they definitely. You are making amazing changes in Florida. Did you all know that Florida is going to be the first state to require technology CLE? Thanks to John Stewart. I like that. I Let's not repeat that until the Supreme Court <laughs> passes amazing. it. And I'd rather not all the Florida lawyers hear that just yet. Well, <laughs> no. too late, um, buddy. No, actually, I have been given a card that has my Twitter handle because while I love to tweet, I'm a prolific tweeter. I have no idea what my handle is, so I have it here. It's at the underscore John Stewart because apparently someone else had borrowed the name John Stewart prior to me. There's so only one John Stewart in our lives. I know. Well, thank you both so much. We really appreciate it. And thank John, you for the invitation. You're very welcome. And, John, thank you for being my co-host. Thank you. It was fun. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Adriana Linera signing off from Chicago. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.